Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Anna Kagarakis, and each week we head down memory lane as I take you back in time and we remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. No need for a flux capacitor. All you need to do is subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Did you ever wonder why the Atlanta Braves and Cincinnati Reds were part of the National League West Division from 1969 to 1993? while the Chicago Cubs and St. Louis Cardinals were members of the East. Well, on July 10, 1968, the day after the All-Star Game, a decision was announced that would forever alter the game of baseball. The National League and American League split into two divisions. Major League Baseball added four teams to the mix and added another round of playoffs. That was in connection to the 1969 expansion. But how did all that change come to be? Well, it all started with a colorful character named Charles O'Finley. Oakland A's fans are very familiar with Charlie O. He had some quirky out-of-the-box ideas like using orange baseballs during exhibition games. There was a mechanical rabbit named Harvey that would pop up behind home plate. And he even changed the team's uniforms to have them wear white cleats. I do love that look, though. So just to give you an idea of who he was, here's Charlie Finley on the Johnny Carson show. Now, I just we just said a little briefly before the show and you showed me something that I know you're trying to uh, get into baseball and when you see this the baseball purists will probably go my god what is it? <laughs> now if you have a color television set this is a bright orange baseball and of course in baseball the uh, the baseballs have been white ever since baseball came into being and you would like to change that. I sure would. With the with an alert orange baseball, uh, you know, you've got to think about the fans. This right. will enable the fans to follow the flight of the ball much easier than a white ball. Right. And number two, the hitters, they can see that ball coming out of that pitcher's white uniform an awful lot easier. Yeah. And it's going to enable the hitters to improve on their yeah. batting averages. Uh, it's going to put more action into the games, and the fans are going to like it very much. But the pitchers, they despise the why, ball. Why, do they, why don't they like it? Well, because uh, I toss it out in the audience, and look at there, somebody catch that. Look at that, he caught it without dropping it. Because it's, in other words, optically, it's easier to see. Yes, it is. Now, at the time, Finley was the owner of the Kansas City Athletics, but decided to move his team to Oakland for the 1968 season. The move got league approval by a 7-3 vote, but didn't go over so well in Kansas City. In 1967, the day the American League approved the transfer of the Athletics to Oakland, Missouri U.S. Senator Stuart Symington threatened to open hearings into baseball's antitrust exemption. The American League immediately granted an expansion franchise to Kansas City for 1969. To reach an even 12 teams, the league gifted a franchise to Seattle. That December at the 1967 winter meetings in Mexico City, the National League committed to expanding to 12 teams no later than 1971. In April 1968, NL owners voted to expand for 1969, then a month later awarded franchises to San Diego and Montreal. But the construction of the 12 league teams was the biggest issue at hand. In baseball's previous 8-10 team models, both the AL and NL 
were divisionless, and the first-place winner of each league would advance to the World Series. Under the new expansion, American League owners preferred breaking the league up into two six-team divisions. The division champions would face off in a playoff round for a berth in the World Series. The more traditional-minded National League didn't want to see a change. They didn't want the split divisions or a new playoff round. They wanted one 12-team league with one champion and one postseason representative. After back-and-forth battles between the presidents of each league, all signs pointed to the National League playing a 162-game schedule with a 12-team league and no divisions, while the American League would play a 156-game schedule with two six-team divisions and a championship before the World Series. Before the 1968 All-Star Game on July 8th, columnist Arthur Daly of the New York Times argued that the National League and American League proposing different plans would be a manifest invitation to disaster. The All-Star Game was held at the Astrodome in Houston, the world's first multi-purpose dome sports stadium, nicknamed the eighth wonder of the world. It had opened just a few years prior and was the first All-Star Game to be played indoors. It was a feature that was highlighted that season. Now, while fans were focusing on the game on the field and the AstroTurf, behind the scenes, another game was being played. L.A. Dodger owner Walter O'Malley was at that point considered the most powerful man in baseball and had reportedly brokered a sit-down between the two leagues at that week's All-Star festivities in Houston. On July 10, 1968, the day after the All-Star game, Major League Baseball announced that in exchange for the American League going to a 162-game schedule, the National League would also split into two divisions. Teams would play 18 games against their divisional opponents and 12 against teams in the other division. But how were the teams divided amongst the divisions? It took more than 10 votes for the National League owners and executives to agree on division alignments. Mets owners wanted to be in the same division as the Dodgers and Giants, or at least with one of the teams. Both franchises had moved out west from New York less than a decade earlier and still had large fan bases out east. The Dodgers didn't want to be in the same division as the Padres as they considered the San Diego team to be interlopers in their territory. Then there were the Cardinals and Cubs, who wanted to play in the same division. But don't forget Cincinnati. The Reds wanted to be in the same division with them as well. Making everyone happy just wasn't going to happen. So the National League set up a plan that made no geographic sense. The New York Mets, Montreal Expos, Philadelphia Phillies, Pittsburgh Pirates, St. Louis Cardinals, and Chicago Cubs made up one division, the NL East. While the West included the LA Dodgers, Houston Astros, San Diego Padres, San Francisco Giants, Atlanta Braves, and Cincinnati Reds. For the Braves and Reds, 18 games against the three California teams meant at least three West Coast trips a year and later start times for fans to watch and listen back home. Cardinals and Cubs only had to make two trips to the Golden State, even though they were farther west than both Atlanta and Cincy. However, Reds president Francis L. Dale looked forward to cultivating new rivalries with the change. This also addressed another concern. The league's three strongest clubs at the time were St. Louis, the Giants, and the Cubs. Putting all three in one division out west could result in divisional inequity. Now turning to the American League, the AL East included the Baltimore Orioles, the Boston Red Sox, Cleveland Indians, Detroit Tigers, New York Yankees, and the Washington Senators. In the AL West, 
you had three teams in the central time zone, the Chicago White Sox, the Minnesota Twins, and the Kansas City Royals. The other three were in the Pacific, with the Oakland Athletics, the California Angels, and the Seattle Pilots. Some American League owners took issue with how the teams were actually divided. The owners of the Chicago White Sox and Minnesota Twins weren't pleased with being grouped with the West Coast teams in California and Seattle. But somehow it worked out in the end. With that decision on July 10, 1968, the 1969 baseball season would open up with four new teams in newly created divisions, which resulted with each league holding a best-of-five league championship series to decide the pennant winners. So now let's go back in time and listen in on some opening day moments from a few of those expanded franchises. Here's sound from the past. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. to be forever remembered, February the 21st, 1969, Fort Myers, Florida, as the Royals took the field for the first time. After 18 months of careful planning and tireless effort, the big day finally arrived. Opening day, Municipal Stadium on April the 8th, and what a launching it was, as immediately the dream script began. The Royals win the opening day struggle against the eventual winners in the Western Division, the Minnesota Twins. They traveled through 12 innings. They won by a score of 4-3. to three. Yes, the Royals were for real. And the man who made it all possible tells us why. Royal owner Ewing Kaufman. Basically, the reason that I got in the baseball business is that I thought the people of Kansas City in this great metropolitan area should have a Major League Baseball team. I also would say that I think that Kansas City and Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, Oklahoma are tremendous sports fans, and I thought it would be successful. Welcome back to baseball, Kansas City. You've been missed. Mark the coming of the international era of Major League Baseball, the arrival of the Expos, a team destined to draw more than a quarter of a million fans, one and a quarter million, in their opening year in Jerry Park. When the Expos gathered at West Palm Beach for their training camp, the players and coaching staff had to be introduced to each other. But on opening day, they didn't play that way at Shea Stadium in New York. One of the proudest men in New York that day was the mayor of Montreal, John Drapeau, given the honor of throwing out the traditional first ball. This was truly a first. The Mets catcher, Jerry Grody, was on the receiving end of the short toss, a pitch many people thought would never be made. Montreal in Major League Baseball, never. Pride in the hearts of Montrealers swelled as their manager, Gene Mock, walked to the plate to hand in his lineup, the first Canadian lineup for a Major League game. First Expo batter in a Major League game, the popular Maury Wills. Wills was to have his own problems as the season progressed, and eventually he was traded to his favorite team, the Los Angeles Dodgers. But on this day, Wills hit two doubles, one single, stole one base, scored two runs, made one pickoff play, started one double play. But on this, his first time at bat, he became Montreal's first out. Friday afternoon, April 11th, 1969. Major League Baseball comes to the Pacific Northwest, and the great American game becomes, in fact, a truly national sport. Seattle team, 
pilots of Seattle sprouted their American League wings in a most auspicious manner, and the years to come should bring even more thrills. Well, maybe not. Unfortunately, the pilots were short-lived. A single season, to be exact. The team fell into financial trouble and ended up moving to Milwaukee to become the Brewers. The American League made changes within only a few years of the 1969 expansion. But the National League alignments remained unchanged through all the way till the 1992 season. You see a lot of times over history that the National League seems to follow a more traditional route. After very much debate and back and forth over the years, now in the year 2020, we are seeing the National League adopt the designated hitter in all games, not just at American League ballparks. You know, we're seeing many changes with the pandemic this season. A shortened season to 60 games and a focus on playing against teams in their own geographic region in order to limit travel. So the question now, how will this affect the sport in the long run? Will we see new alignments in the divisions? One that's more geographically friendly? Or more like how the NBA has set up their divisions or playoff seedings? Will we see a shortened baseball season down the road? What I find funny, you have so many baseball purists who don't want to change the sport because they want to uphold the game's traditions. But in reality, the game has changed drastically over the years. We evolve. So my question is, what will baseball look like 50 years from now? Will we have robo-umps? Will the wild card game turn into a series? Will more teams be added into the playoffs? What else do you see down the road? Let me know by reaching out on Twitter, at Anna Kagaragis, or by using the hashtag SportsTimeMachine. Another interesting event happened on July 10th, this one, in 1939. Eccentric billionaire Howard Hughes and his crew set a world record by flying around the globe in just 91 hours. Hughes and his four companions departed Floyd Bennett Field, then continued to Paris, Moscow, Omsk, Yakutsk, Fairbanks, Minneapolis, then returned to New York City, covering 14,672 miles in three days, 19 hours, 14 minutes, and 10 seconds, beating the previous record by more than four hours. The purpose of Hughes' round-the-world flight was to show the triumph of American aviation technology and to illustrate that safe, long-distance air travel was possible. He returned home to a grand reception and a ticket tape parade in New York. Howard Hughes' story is incredibly interesting. He was a Hollywood movie producer, an aircraft inventor, mining mogul, casino owner, ladies' man, but also had his own inner demons that haunted him later in life. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend watching The Aviator. It's a Martin Scorsese film. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Hughes and does a spectacular job. It's a great old-school Hollywood feel film. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's one of Scorsese's best. Well, I hope you learned something new today. Thank you again for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. We're available on all your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagarakis, that's K-A-G-A-R-A-K-I-S, or on Instagram at Anna Kags. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Thanks for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagarakis, and we'll talk soon.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.